And Lord, for our time again this morning, as we look at a small passage from your word, speak to us the things we need to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever had the experience in your life where someone does something for you or something comes through, some means of encouragement, some provision, that you should have known was coming, maybe, but had forgotten about. Maybe a promise that was made, but so much time's gone by, you've, you've forgotten about it. And then that person keeps their promise, or that thing is fulfilled, and you're so encouraged because that promise that was made, perhaps, but was forgotten simply through the passage of time, comes back to you. And you're encouraged not only because of whatever it is that transpires, but you're encouraged because someone kept their word or someone kept their promise. On a little different note, you know, if you have your anniversary and your spouse remembers, you're glad. Or your birthdays and someone remembers you. Not so much a promise, but someone has come through for you, so to speak, and you're encouraged because of that. That's a little bit of what we're going to look at this morning. I was trying to think of illustrations of this, and frankly, all the ones I could think of I've used before, but thinking about promises made and promises kept Douglas MacArthur in World War II, one of the great somewhat contemporary ones. Remember when they're pushed off, the U.S. forces are pushed out of the Philippines and he leaves. But as he does in 1942, he says, I will return. And it wasn't an idle boast. Two years later, he does. Um, I thought of lots of instances in the Lord of the Rings where a promise is made, but then it's forgotten because so much time goes by. But then it's kept and there's this special encouragement that comes because not only the provision but because it was tied to a promise made long ago that was kept or if you think of Odysseus trying to get home during the Odyssey or Penelope cleverly waiting for him and holding out by her it's not crocheting but something along that line yeah but anyway promises made and you know in the world in which we live uh, promises aren't always kept it was interesting when I did a search online looking for illustrations and I typed in the words promises kept. And many, if not most, of the hits that I got were related to politics. That is, did the promise made during an election, was it kept by the politician once in office? And of course, most of those aren't. Most of those probably can't be. So we live in a day and an age, certainly, in which many times you'll hear promises made. It doesn't mean they're going to be kept. But the passage I want to look at this morning is about a promise, a promise made and a promise kept. And this is, we'll be looking at Christmas for the next few Sundays, and this is certainly along that line. The passage that we're going to look at this morning is Luke 1, 67 through 79. That is the only passage we'll be in if you'd like to turn there. And I might say... This passage, like so many others, there's a multitude of things we could highlight. There's so much in this, and we're just going to pick, frankly, just a very few things that struck me as I read it. I'm going to highlight those. You might, if you were teaching this passage or as you're reading it, you might think, why didn't he mention 12 other things? But we'll just touch on a couple. Before we read this passage, let me set the scene for you, too. In Luke 1... At this point, um, we lose sight historically. Think of it this way. 
when the gospel stories start, it's been at least 400 years since any word of God had come to Israel and been recorded. Okay? I think as Christians, we lose sight of the continuum that God's plan of redemption was in. But during the age in which Luke opens up his story, there had been at least 400 what are termed silent years. 400 silent years. Israel had not had a a recorded prophecy since Malachi. Malachi, the last book in our Old Testament, and Malachi, the last book given chronologically in the Old Testament. Malachi was around 420. 400 years. This is a long time without God speaking afresh to the nation of Israel. Because remember, if you go from Malachi back, God always had a king or a prophet, someone he was speaking through and addressing the nation. But here it's been 400 years and no new word, no recorded word from God. Also, think of the period that uh, the Gospels open with. During these 400 years, a lot of times, if you think of them as silent years, you might think empty, but of course they weren't. Um, because the 400 years between Malachi and Luke were tumultuous years. Think of what was going on on the world stage. The Persian Empire, followed by Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire, followed by the Roman Empire. And Israel, situated as it is on the east end of the Mediterranean, it's at the X, the middle of the X, as it were, between world powers, all shifting for domination. It's right in the middle, unfortunately. So it was always a peace being brokered for or fought over. And in the midst of this world domination, one after another, the period of the Maccabees comes up, 168. I don't know if you remember this. You can read First and Second Maccabees for their history. But Israel had this brief, shining period where under the family leadership of the family of the Maccabees, Israel kicks out foreign oppressors. Israel, in fact, for this brief, shining moment, assumes almost all of the ancient boundaries that they held under David and Solomon. But it doesn't last, of course. And they are again, when Luke writes, under Roman domination. So it's not like nothing was going on. But there's no fresh revelation from God, no recorded word from a prophet for over 400 years. That's the scenario that Luke is writing into. Also think of this. Nine months before the passage we read, that 400 years of heaven's silence was broken. And it was broken when an angel named Gabriel leaves heaven and shows up in the temple in Jerusalem before a frightened old man, old Zacharias, the priest who was burning incense. And this was the only time in his life he would have. They drew lots and he would do it once and once only. And here's this old guy, Zac, in the temple for once in his life in the holy place, and the angel appears to him. And this was the first revelation of God that we know of that's recorded for 400 years. Old Zacharias. And the angel tells old Zach that he and his aging wife, Elizabeth, are going to have a son. This is right out of Genesis, isn't it? To Abraham and Sarah. Excuse me, Abraham and... Am I saying this right? Abraham and Sarah. 
where this old couple is promised a son. And the angel told Zacharias in Luke 1 verse 17 that they would have a son, and speaking of the son, it is he who will go as a forerunner before him, before God, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children, and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So at the passage we pick up in this morning, this little boy promised Zacharias and Elizabeth, has been born. And now he's being circumcised, the dirty deed is being done, and he's being given his name. And we know him as John, John the Baptist. And at this point, you remember Zacharias was under judgment because he didn't believe the angel. And so he has been unable to speak for nine months. But here, John the Baptist is named John, Zacharias' tongue is loosed, And he praises God in this prophetic utterance in Luke 1, verse 67 through 79. His father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, little John, will be called the prophet of the Most High, For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Again, there's all kinds of things we we can get out of this passage. What I'll focus on this morning, though, is this, that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. Look at what Zacharias includes in this prophetic praise to God. Look at verse 70. He says, related to what God has done in giving him a son, a forerunner to the Messiah, and remember, most of what Zacharias Uh, mentions here really isn't even about his son, is it? It's about the Messiah. Redemption and everything tied to redemption is about Jesus, who is not yet born, but who is present. He's on the earth in the womb when this is recorded. Salvation has come. Jesus hasn't been delivered yet, but salvation has already come. And most of what Zechariah says here isn't about his son, at whose circumcision this is being given. It's about the one his son would introduce, the Messiah. But he says, related to that, he spoke, God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Zacharias says this redemption, this messenger, and the one the messenger introduces is tied to what God spoke about through his holy prophets in times past. Or verse 72, Zacharias said what God is doing is remembering his holy covenant. It's tied to a promise, unconditional promises, covenants 
that God made long ago. And then verse 73, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. See, on one hand, there's been this very long duration of silence. But when God speaks and moves, and when the Baptist, the messenger, and the one that he'll introduce are brought onto the scene, Zacharias, when he praises God for this, says, you're just doing what you said you would. God, you're keeping your promises. God, you're fulfilling your oath. You're doing exactly what you said you would. I don't want to belabor the point, but I do want to read some of the things Zacharias might have been thinking about. In Genesis 22, this is to Abraham. He said, uh, covenants, things spoken to Abraham, holy covenants, things spoken through the prophets of old. Looking at what God had said to Abraham in Genesis 22, God had said to Abraham, by myself I have sworn. I'm making an oath, God says. Because you have done this thing, this is when Abraham offers Isaac on the mountain, and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will greatly bless you. I will multiply your seed, we could say descendants, as the stars of the heaven, as the sand on the seashore. Verse 18, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Um, I don't like the the use of the term seed because it can be confusing for us. If we say descendant, we get a little bit more of the the sense. In your seed, Paul takes this verse out of Genesis 22. In Galatians, he tells us, he interprets it for us, and he says seed is not plural as it was used just previously in this passage in Genesis 22. He said seed is singular. Seed is one descendant, the Messiah that would come through Abraham. In your descendant, in your key descendant, all nations of the earth will be blessed. Or in Genesis 49, when old Jacob is on his deathbed and he gathers all his boys around him, and he does what Zacharias does, he prophesies over his sons. And one of the prophecies is over Judah. And he says in Genesis 49.10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. God had promised Abraham's descendant Jacob that the ruler, the key ruler, the Messiah, the great king that God would bring, would be a descendant of Judah. He confirmed the promise, and here he narrows it down to say he'll come from the tribe of Judah. Or to the nation of Israel in Isaiah, this is a passage that we'll look at a little later this Christmas season, but Isaiah 9 some of the best-known verses from the Old Testament about Jesus' first coming. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Some people might tell you that this promise was inherent or a portion of this promise was inherent in David's former son Solomon. In fact there's other things we'll look at in 1 Chronicles 17 that Solomon was a type of Christ and he was and there's promises made to David earlier that Solomon was a near fulfillment of this promised king who 
extended the kingdom to its furthest boundaries and had incredible wisdom and wealth. But Solomon died. And one of the things that Isaiah tells us about the king that would come was that his kingdom will not end. He will rule and his ruling will never end. Or Micah 5.2 said, As for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth to me to be ruler in Israel. Or to David specifically in 1 Chronicles 17, God had promised, I will set up one of your descendants after you, who shall be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne. Now we could say this was true of Solomon, and it was. Solomon built the temple, and God established his throne. The the trouble with Solomon being the fulfillment is his throne did not last forever. God continued to David, I will be his father, he will be my son. I will settle him in my house, in my kingdom forever, and his throne will be established established forever. So when Zacharias praises God in Luke 1, he says, God, you're only doing what you said you would. You're fulfilling your promises. You're keeping the word you made, the oath, the promise, the statements you made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, through the prophets. This is just the tip of the iceberg. You can find many, many more passages that predict Jesus' coming. So think of this. 2,000 years after God makes this promise to Abraham, 2,000 years, 1,000 years after the promise is made to David, 700 years after the promises are made to Isaiah, 400 years after the promises are made to Malachi. You get the point. God keeps the promises and sends his son. See, there was no doubt if it would happen. It was just when. That was the thing. And I think for us today, oftentimes we read things in the scripture, promises that we want to hang on to, but we're not sure when they're going to happen. And that's the thing that leaves us a little unsure. But when you read those promises in the scripture, whatever they are regarding, if they haven't taken place yet, it's not a question of if they will, but when. It's not a question of if, but when. And I think this is the difficulty for us most of the time. Listen to what Peter says. This is in 2 Peter. And it's not about Jesus' first coming. It's about his second coming. And Peter says this. He says, when people, mockers, he calls them, say, where is his coming? He promised he'd come back. And remember, Peter dies, let's just say, around 70 A.D. People were saying, within 30 to 40 years of Jesus' death and resurrection, he promised he'd come back. Where is he? We're 2,000 years later. It applies perhaps more so today than it did then. To that mocking, Peter says, don't let this one fact escape your notice, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. God is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. No, but he's patient toward you, not wishing for anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. Think of it from God's perspective. God sits in eternity. Time time is... Time is nothing to God. Time is an anomaly. 
We could say, God could say, you know what, it's been two days since I promised Abraham an heir. 2,000 year periods. The trouble for us oftentimes is when we know God's made a promise, it's how long will it take before it happens? That's the challenge. And you know, sometimes um, because God is alive and because he deals in the world of men, the world you and I live in, and because he's given us his spirit, sometimes God will speak something to you personally. I say this carefully. We need to hold these things carefully. Sometimes we think God's speaking and, and he's not. But sometimes because his spirit is with us and because he speaks today to us primarily through a scripture, but sometimes quite personally, quite specifically about something he's going to do or accomplish in our life, the days or the weeks or the months or the years will roll by and we, we think we didn't hear from God when we very may well have heard him quite clearly. But it's the time element. We get discouraged and we think maybe we didn't hear. Maybe he didn't speak. Maybe I'm making it up. But in those occasions when he really did speak, it's the time that kind of gets us. But you know, we can be at peace because if he has said, here in his word, or if he's told us something personally and specifically, and I mean when he's really spoken, not when we imagine it, um, it's going to happen. God cannot lie. If he promises something, if he says something will happen, it is going to happen. And if he's made you a promise and you're sure of it, you can count on him fulfilling it and bringing it to pass. God keeps his word. He keeps his promises. And that's one of the things Zacharias praises him for in that passage. The second thing along this line is that when God keeps his promises, he keeps them to those to whom he made them. He keeps his promises to the people he made the promises to. Now this may sound... I don't know, nonsensical. But when you and I think of Christmas, if you're like me, you think of a Christian holiday. Christmas is primarily not a Christian holiday. It is a Jewish holiday. If you look for the promises of God to bless the Gentiles in the Old Testament, they are there, but they are not that many. If you look for promises related to the church in the Old Testament, they are non-existent. Non-existent. You can look all day long. They, they are not there. Because Paul says in Ephesians that the church was a mystery. It was something that God had not made known in the Old Testament. Blessing to the Gentiles was made known. And you can read about that in many passages. Uh, Israel, uh, excuse me, Assyria is promised redemption. Egypt is promised redemption. The Gentiles are promised blessing right from the first Uh, messianic uh, prophecy in Genesis 3. But if you lump the promises made in the Old Testament about a Savior and a Deliverer and about the Messiah, they're primarily to the nation of Israel. You remember John 1, he came to his own. He came to his own because he had to. Because the Messiah was Israel's king. Some people will tell you that Israel as a nation has no future. God's a liar if they don't. He has made promises to Israel as a nation that have never been kept, never been fulfilled. He was lying if Israel as a nation doesn't have a future in his economy. 
if Jesus, King Jesus, doesn't return to the earth to rule over the nation of Israel as the center of the world, God lied. We tend to be absorbed in the world we occupy and inhabit. God came first to save the Jews because the promises were made to Abraham and his descendants. He came to his own, his own received him not. The Jewish nation did reject him. And God takes that and he opens up the door to the Gentiles for the last 2,000 years. The church has been the thing, the people God's been working through. But guys, this is the day of the church. It started and we're in it and it's going to end. And God will start over again with the nation of Israel. And we need to appreciate that we're one piece of his puzzle. We're not the beginning and the end. And all Israel, Paul says in Romans 11, will be saved. In fact, you'll hear a prophetic teachers teach out of Matthew 24 and 25. They are nonsensical if Israel as a nation does not have a future. They're all tied to Israel and to Jerusalem. Acts 1, when the angels say, don't worry about this Jesus who's taken off, he's coming back in the same way in which he left. Where is that? It's to Jerusalem. It's to the Mount of Olives. Anyway, when God keeps his promise, he keeps it to the people he made it to. Christmas is primarily, it is first, a Jewish holiday. You know, this is just a great reminder too. If you have Jewish friends who don't know Christ, Christmas is a great time. Hanukkah also, from the time of the Maccabees, is the same time of season. Christmas is a great time to remind Jewish unbelievers that Jesus the Messiah came for them. He's their Messiah. He's their promised King. Just to get back to the point that when God makes a promise, He keeps it to the promise, He keeps it to the people He made it to. God's not going to make a promise to you and give it to someone else. If it's made to you, he's keeping it to you. He made promises to Israel, to the Jewish nation, and he kept it. And he's as good as their word. And although he came to his own and his own received him not, Israel will receive him in the future at his second coming. So he not only keeps his promise, he keeps them to the people he made them to. And then last related to this promise keeping is that God's promise keeping displays his mercy. Look at what he says in verse 72. Zechariah said that God was showing mercy towards our fathers. Mercy in making the promises and mercy in keeping the promises. And then in verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, the sunrise from on high shall visit us. When God keeps his promise, all of them actually, but here specifically related to the messenger and the, and the Messiah, he says it's his mercy. In fact, the last of our three verses of the song we opened with are right out of Malachi 4, which is exactly what Zacharias is quoting here. It's Malachi. Malachi 3 and 4. And that's how the Old Testament ends. It's with the promise of the Messiah rising like the sun with healing in his wings. Zechariah says it was God's mercy. God in mercy made promises. God in mercy was keeping promises. Mercy and kindness. 
God always de deals with us in mercy and in kindness. If you say, if you get down to the so what uh, question, you know, you read a passage of scripture and you say, so what? So what? That gets to application. So what? What do you do with this passage? How does this apply to you and I today? What difference does it make? First, let me mention a verse that we didn't actually uh, read as far as the promise keeping and start with that as far as an application. Zechariah said that the coming of the Messiah was to guide our feet into the way of peace. The coming of the Messiah would guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, in context, this can mean a few things. He's already talked about the forgiveness of sins. That's peace between me and God because my sins are covered, taken care of. He's also talked about Israel enjoying peace, peace from our enemies. Remember again, the 400 silent years weren't silent for Israel in their experience. They were trampled on by the world powers. Another kind of peace in context is peace from our enemies, Zacharias says. Now, we can pray for those same things today. Peace on earth, certainly, we want that. Many soldiers, people you and I may know and love, in other parts of the very unpeaceful world. But bring this right back home to where you and I live. Ask yourself, related to this Christmas season, are the plans you're making and are the expectations that you develop related to the Christmas season, do they lead you in paths of peace? You know, we tend to be excessive in almost everything we do, food, shopping, spending, you name it. Is your Christmas season, is it typified by peace? When you're making plans or when you're shopping for gifts or whatever, are the things you're doing, do they lead you to stress and anxiety or do they lead you into ways of peace? Would the people you rub shoulders with this Christmas season find you at peace or find you filled with anxiety? <clears throat> Christ's coming was supposed to bring peace for the Jews and certainly for us today. Are the things that we're involved with this Christmas season, are we walking in the ways, in the paths of peace? Think about this too. Oftentimes the holidays are the times when we rub shoulders with family members and friends. Will the impact that you have on others this Christmas season be an impact of peace? Are you at peace with God and are you at peace as far as it depends on you with the people around you? Many times we're thrown into relationships people that we may not have the greatest relationships with during the Christmas season. As far as it depends on you, are you bringing peace with you to those family gatherings or workplace gatherings or whatever it may be? Are you walking this Christmas in the paths of peace? <clears throat> I know most of you and I know where some of the situations <clears throat> many of you are at in life related to God's promises. Uh, are you and I, this Christmas season, trusting in God's promises? And let me just throw a few out. This Christmas season, are you financially challenged? Are you unemployed? Are you short of resources? Paul says in Philippians 4, I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled, 
and going hungry, of having abundance and suffering need, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Later on in the same passage, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Matthew 6. Don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? With what shall we clothe ourselves? These are the things that the godless, worrying Gentiles, the people who don't know God, this is what they worry about. But your heavenly Father knows you need these things. Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. This Christmas season, if you're feeling challenged financially, are you trusting these promises? These are absolute promises. Are you trusting these? If you are, you should have the joy that Zacharias knew. You should have the peace that he was talking about. But you won't if you're not trusting the promises. How about this Christmas season if you are in some way feeling lonely? You know, suicide rates go up during the holidays. Because at a time when lots of people are getting together and celebrating, if you feel lonely, that sense is exasperated. It's made all the more clear to you. If you're feeling lonely this Christmas season, Matthew 28, Jesus told his disciples as he's leaving them, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Or in Hebrews 13, this is written to Christians who had suffered loss in all kinds of ways and persecution. Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. Why? Because he himself has said, I will never desert you. I will never forsake you. You know, even if we don't have as many friends as we think we would like to, or if our relationships aren't all that they ought to be, or at least ought to be in our minds with those around us, Jesus says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You've always got me. You can always be content or at peace. Christmas season or any other time. How about Christmas season? Are you anxious? Are you worried about many things? You can be. There's so much going on. It's easy to be anxious. Listen to Jesus' words in Luke 10. Uh, Jesus was at a party. It wasn't a Christmas party, but it was a party. It was a get-together with lots of people around. And Martha, Luke 10, verse 40, was distracted with all her preparations. See, she's running back and forth. She's busy and she's working hard. She's roasting the Christmas goose, we might say, or she's getting the Christmas pies already. She comes up to Jesus, Lord, don't you care? that my sister has left me with all this serving to be done. You go tell her to come help me. The Lord said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things. You know, this is a great Christmas verse, isn't it? You're strung out. You're overextended with all these things. You're trying to do too much. He says to her, only a few things are necessary. Really? Only one. Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. There's only one thing, Martha, that you really need. That was me. I'm here. Hang out with me. 
you know what? We'll all be fed one way or another. Dinner will be served one way or another. The table may not be set just perfect. And even if a little bit of the dinner is burned, that's okay. You know, those things take care of themselves. But he says you're worried about all these, this multitude of things. Let go of them. Focus on the one, the important thing, which in this case, for Mary and Martha and for us today, it's the focus on Jesus himself. Only one thing, he said, is really needful. And you know in the Christmas season, it's easy to focus on everything but one, Christ. Isn't it? We build so much stuff up. If you've got to buy presents for 100 people and you're serving 20 for dinner and you're whatever, I mean, you know, the parties and et cetera, et cetera. We get like Martha. See, there's too many bases to cover. And Jesus says to us, just like he said to Martha, you're worried about too many things. Let go. Chill out. Cool down. You know, whatever. Let those other things go. Focus on me. Spend your time with me. And, you know, with Christmas, there's uh, family coming in and going out, trips to make, things to purchase, etc. Into that milieu, Jesus says... Focus on the most important. And the last thing is, God's mercy. Um, You know, it was in mercy that God sent his son to be born into the world. And it was his mercy that sent his son to die on a cross for our sins and to rise from the dead. It's his mercy. It's his kindness towards us. All God's acts, one verse says, towards us are acts of kindness and mercy. And this Christmas season, you know, especially if you're tempted to feel shortchanged in any way, you're underappreciated, or God hasn't given you what you thought he would, or, or whatever, remember this. All God's dealings with us, with us his children, are in mercy and are in kindness. God's not shortchanging you and I. Even if our life isn't what we want it to be, or we're not where we thought we should be, Everything God does in our life is out of his mercy and his kindness. When he makes his promises and when he keeps them, they reflect his mercy and his kindness towards us. So this Christmas season, when you start to get strung out or when you're worried about one thing or another, go back to Zacharias. Remember, God keeps his promises, the big ones and the little ones, and he'll keep the promises he made to you. And focus on him. Turn loose. Do with a little less. Buy a little less. Make a little less. Make him the focus. And remember, with all the things going on, if you're slighted by a relative, if you're forgotten by somebody at work, whatever, remember that God, the one who's promised never to leave you and I, nor to forsake us, that everything he's doing in your life and mine is out of kindness and mercy. Let's pray. Lord, thanks that you keep your word. Lord, if it could be said this way, you are even better than your word. Paul said that it has not entered the heart of man the things you prepared for us, uh, though you've revealed them to us in your word, and yet, Lord, even there, the glories that await us in heaven, your word hasn't described them to us. You're as good as and you're better than 
your word, Lord. Help us to remember the promises you've made, the big ones and the little ones. Help us to focus on them and trust you for them this Christmas season. Lord, when we're tempted to feel lonely, anxious, or despairing, help us to remember that your ways with us are kindness and mercy. Help us to make you our focus. Help us to trust you for the relationships with those people around us. Help us to trust you for the physical provisions we need. Lord, thank you that you've made promises so that you can keep them and that we are at the center of your will, that your heart towards us is to give us your gift, the ultimate gift, the gift of your Son. Help us to embrace him this season. And Lord, in our thoughts and in our interactions with others this month, this Christmas season, may Jesus himself be at the center of all of that. Lord, it will be a happy holiday season. It will be a blessed time if with Mary we make Jesus himself our focus. Help us to do that for ourselves and for the sake and for the blessing of those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.